Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, communication specialist Melissa Clay talks with IH director and music professor Mark Katz as he has just returned from research leave. Katz discussed his work on two books about hip-hop diplomacy and music technology, as well as the crucial impact of faculty taking time off from teaching at a research university. I really enjoyed the event last night. Oh, thanks. Your presentation thanks on, the, uh, on the multi-sensory experience of Next Level. And you truly made it multi-sensory. I didn't expect that you would show photographs and that we would be able to hear how the musicians work without looking at each other, that sort of thing. That was very interesting. Oh, cool. So welcome back. How does it feel to be back from your research leave? Well, thank you, Clay. I'm excited to be back. Uh, the Institute is a great place to work. It's doing important and exciting work. And I feel energized after being on research leave for the past year. And I just am very excited to be back in the mix and um, in the swirl of excitement in a new school year, seeing the students come back, seeing the faculty come back. You know, it's a place of great energy and a time of great energy. What did you work on during your research leave? Well, I was working on two books, which sounds very ambitious, but one of them was greatly overdue. So it wasn't by design that I was working on two books. <laughs> but um, one of them was uh, is a book called uh, Music and Technology, A Very Short Introduction. And it's in a series called uh, Very Short Introductions from Oxford University Press that's designed for the general reader. So this book distills my research on music and technology and, and is intended to convey the issues, the debates, the arguments, uh, the history of the relationship between music and technology over the last 30,000 years. So it's a lot to do in 30,000 words. The other book that I'm working on is on hip-hop diplomacy, and that's, that's my current research project. And what I was doing over the year was both writing and researching because I um, not only am I writing about the subject, I'm actually practicing the subject. I run a program called Next Level, which is a diplomacy program uh, funded by the State Department that uses hip-hop as a means to further diplomacy and cultural exchange. So I was actually traveling quite a bit. I was in, I don't know, maybe... 12 different countries last year. In your research so far on hip-hop diplomacy, what did you find, what have you found that, that struck you? What keeps coming back to me and, and, and keeps being reinforced on my trips is the way in which hip-hop builds community or has the potential to build community. And this is true of music in general, but I'm seeing in this moment in the world that hip-hop is particularly powerful in, in building community. It connects people. It's, it, it serves as a bridge uh, between people, not only within a culture, but between different cultures. So when I bring Americans to Algeria or to Croatia, we can sit down with some hip-hop artists there and within minutes feel like we have a really close connection. So 
I think that's something that that is very powerful. And in fact, it connects to what we do at the Institute, which is to empower faculty by creating community. So um, there are some nice, uh, nice connections between what I'm seeing out in the field and in my research and what I do in my day job here. Why do you think hip hop does that? Why do you think that, that hip hop right now has that power of bringing people together? Well, well, hip hop has, uh, I think there are a couple of distinctive aspects uh, to hip hop. One is that it's accessible. So meaning that someone can be a rapper with nothing more than their body. It can be a, a b-boy or a b-girl, the term for breakdancer, with nothing more than your body. You could do other things, right? You know, graffiti. You can be a DJ with very modest means. So one thing is that it's much more accessible than other forms of art, say playing piano or organ or being in the orchestra, um, because uh, with very modest means, you can do pretty much everything you can. Another is that it's very flexible in terms of uh, modes of expression. So there isn't um, a canon of works and a, uh, a set of techniques that are that are accepted and required. It's different from, say, classical violin, which I play, and you do your etudes, and and uh, certainly there's freedom there. But but hip hop uh, seems to embody freedom, and it's also I think simply because it's popular and it it's popular all around the world, and basically everywhere I go, there's hip hop. And then lastly, I would say it has historically be, been seen as a voice, as providing a platform for marginalized voices. And that is very powerful for people around the world, especially young people. Earlier, you were talking about how hip hop helps to bring together people, create community and you were linking that to what we do here at the Institute. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. One thing that I've been realizing just not only in my time as a fellow at the Institute before I became director, but especially since I became director, is that perhaps the crucial thing that we do is that we create scholarly, academic, intellectual community. And we do that by bringing faculty together in our fellowship programs, the faculty fellowship program, the academic leadership program. We bring community together through our other programs like the new professor program, the associate professor program. We have, uh, we convene lectures and conferences. So what we do on a daily basis is bring people together in the same room who by discipline wouldn't normally be in the same room. And it reinforces the maxim that the whole is or should be greater than the sum of its parts. And when you bring people of diverse interests, perspectives, and identities together, you get something so much more interesting and robust and vibrant than you would if they were working with people who are just like them. You've said before that faculty cite the Institute for the Arts and Humanities as the reason why they stay. And we have data to support this. Um, over 90% of faculty who are approached by uh, other institutions of higher learning that are fellows stay. And also our faculty fellowships are highly competitive. Um, only two out of five 
who apply get in. Um, why do you think it is that faculty feel so connected to the Institute for the Arts and Humanities that it, um, it is one of the reasons why they stay at Carolina? Well, it goes to our mission. Our mission is to empower faculty to reach their full potential, and that's something that we offer. And I can say that as a faculty member in the music department, I love and cherish my department and my colleagues, but I, like many others uh, on campus, am not completely fulfilled just staying in my department and in my field. I get a great deal of, of intellectual pleasure and stimulation by going outside of my discipline and mixing it up with others, and we offer that here. So that's very compelling. And what I see over and again is that salary, although it's important, is not the most important thing to a faculty member. It's can I be the scholar, the teacher, the artist that I want to be at Carolina? And what the IH does is to provide the answer, which is yes. Besides the faculty fellowships, we also have programs across ranks. Why is that necessary? Why do we have that here? Well, I think people who aren't in academia don't really understand how a faculty member progresses along the tenure track. So you come in, if you're on the tenure track, as an assistant professor. And the life of an assistant professor is very different from one of an associate professor who has tenure because there is a, a kind of a five- to seven-year-long existential crisis that the assistant professor encounters, which is, am I going to be able to continue to be the scholar I want to be at this institution or anywhere else? It's the flip side of, of tenure, which is the, the difficulty of achieving it. So there are special needs for assistant professors in terms of creating the portfolio of scholarship or creative work that they need to get tenure. Um, there's a, a lot of, I would say, anxiety and concern. Um, as an aside, I actually had dinner last night with um, a former fellow who had just gotten tenure, mm-hmm. an amazingly accomplished person um, who, to me, had nothing to worry about, could sleep well at night knowing that she would get tenure. Yet, there's an incredible um, anxiety and concern. So it's something that, uh, that I think is hard to understand and is, can be very isolating for, for assistant professors in the various departments. But we bring them together and we talk about what they need. We talk about how they can maximize their, uh, their potential. And we have programs that that connect with uh, faculty at other stages. So ones who had just received tenure, that comes with its own set of challenges. What do I do now? How do I build uh, the career, the long-term career that I want now that I've accomplished this initial goal of gaining tenure? Now we have a retired professor's program, which is really a, a distinctive, innovative program. One thing that I've seen in my interactions with recently retired faculty is they feel that they're not able to contribute what they want as intellectuals, as scholars. And we are re-engaging them in the university to our benefit, to our great benefit, but also to theirs too. 
And there's another program that we have, the Chair's Leadership Program, and that addresses a very specific and crucial role that that some faculty play in their careers, which is that of a department chair. It's one of the most difficult positions to have in academia. This is something that deans and chancellors will tell you, um, as well as chairs, of course. So it's a really great program. I participated participated in it myself as chair of the music department. And it's a wonderful way of creating community among chairs, because being a chair often means that there are things you really can't discuss easily with your colleagues in your department. So you need to go outside your department to get the per, uh, perspective, wisdom, tips, ideas, collegiality or comradeship. Um, <laughs> so it serves a social function, but also is very helpful in terms of navigating the very, very challenging role of being a chair. We are about to launch the university's capital campaign. And here at the Institute, we are raising money to endow, to fully endow the faculty fellowship program. Why should someone who wants to support Carolina support this effort? Well, faculty at any university, and particularly at Carolina, are really the lifeblood of the university. Because at a research university, you need faculty to generate new knowledge, cutting-edge research. Uh, You need faculty to teach, to inspire the next generation of leaders in this country. And without a strong faculty, you cannot have a strong university. And our mission is to empower faculty, to serve faculty. And one of the ways that you can serve faculty and empower them at a research university is fairly simple, to give them the opportunity to do the important world-changing research that they do, that we do here at Carolina. And one thing that I think people who aren't in academia may not realize is that even though a professor might be at a research university, there isn't a whole lot of time to do the research, especially here because of how committed our faculty are to teaching and to service. I spend more of my time um, teaching and in committees and working with students and colleagues than I do in any given day writing or researching. Um, and I think it speaks well to our faculty that we're so committed to, uh, to teaching and service. But that means that it's hard to find the time to carve out the time for sustained research. And that's what these fellowships do. And they are just a, a tremendous gift to, uh, to the faculty um, to have that gift of time, of sustained time with which to develop your thoughts, develop your research, to write, to create. And then, as I, as I mentioned before, to bring them with, into the institute within this very vibrant community that will only help them strengthen their, their scholarship. So a gift to this fellowship program is really a means to strengthen what is at the core of the university. And one of the nice things about these fellowships is that every year they engage a new faculty member, a new subject, 
And when they are endowed, that means they are forever, that they are going to last as long as there is a university, which means for countless years, there will be another book, another play, another symphony, another article, another life changed um, or many lives changed uh, through uh, the scholarship and teaching of this faculty member. So it's, it's a, a pretty exciting program to be connected to, whether you're in the institute, uh, whether you're um, a faculty member taking part in it, or whether you are giving to it. Um, so that's why, that's why I think it's such an important um, campaign with, uh, for, the, uh, for the institute. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure, Clay. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IH underscore UNC.